Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. We wanted to see how long it took people to rebound after a negative financial event like that. And and we found that in many cases, uh, they were able to rebound within like 18 to 24 months. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Jason Watt, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, in this episode, uh, we're going to talk with Professor Jody Litkevich. Uh, Jody is a financial planning prof at York in Toronto. And uh, this episode is going to be good for one credit in British Columbia, one life credit in Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. It'll be good for credits in all those jurisdictions. It'll be good for an IAS credit, a financial planning credit, an IROC professional development credit, and an MFD financial planning credit. So the whole range of credits, no ANS for those in Alberta. Um, All right, the interview's uh, fairly long here, and I think we explained everything. I don't think I have a lot to do um, outside of uh, the the work itself that Jody did here. Uh, She did all the heavy lifting in this one. Um, All right, the object for today is a book. Uh, This is Laurie Power's new book. Actually, I can't even include a link to it because my list of show notes is so long for this episode. But hey, go over to Laurie. So Laurie's a past show guest. Um, this book is They'll Never Know. I know backwards here. The book is They Never Know. Um, I had lunch with Lori last week and she gave me uh, an early copy of the book. I don't want to say an advanced copy because that sounds fancier than it is. Um, but Lori's, uh, she's a prolific author. Uh, you can go to her um, Amazon author page and buy a book and leave her a good review. And she's got lots of different stuff on there. Some insurance stuff, some fiction, some kids books, uh, cookbook, if I remember right. Um, so again, that's Lori Power, past show guest. So thanks, Lori. Um, all right, with that, let's roll into the interview with Jody. I'm here today with Jody Lakewich. Jody is a prof in the financial, well, actually, I think technically not in financial planning. I can't remember exactly how it breaks down, but you're a financial planning prof at York. Is that fair, Jody? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And I don't remember what the departmental breakdown here is. I know financial planning is one of those things that kind of gets shoehorned in sometimes, sometimes finance, sometimes human ecology. Yeah, consumer. we're in 
we're in a finance department and we have three three streams of finance. So we've got like a corporate finance, uh, investment or wealth management, and then you've got the financial planning stream. So we fit right in there. And one of the few schools in Canada with a dedicated post-secondary, like undergrad financial planning degree program. I think that's right, Jody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you don't get your degree like in financial planning, right? But you would it would say finance, um, and then you would choose the dedicated stream. But we are one of the very few post secondary institutions that offer a dedicated stream in financial planning. We're we're going to talk about the U.S. Canada comparison a little bit later on here. Before we do, I got to get a little bit more bio out of you. So you're not uh, you're not from Toronto. You didn't do your undergrad at York or anything like that. So can you talk about um, your your path to PhD in sorry is it financial planning here too or consumer science? I don't remember your PhD actually, Joanna. And I'm, how that landed you where you're at? So, it's tricky. Yeah. yeah, I had I got um, actually had an undergrad in accounting from Miami University, which is a small uh, public university in Ohio. And then I worked for a while and I went back and I went to Ohio State and Ohio State has a program. Gosh, it's moved since then, but it's basically in the human ecology department and it's consumer sciences. And so that program you can have, there's three different focuses. One is um, textiles and clothing. Another is um, hospitality management and then financial planning. And so my focus was that. and, And I think my degree actually says family resource management. Is that where I don't remember his last name. Is that where Sherman's at? He's at uh, yep. Sherman Hanna. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sherman Hanna. Thank you. All right. Sherman's mm-hmm. sort of uh, at a lot of U.S. financial planning conferences. Sherman is one of the, I'm going to say, Sherman's like Godfathers of, of financial. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He's sort of okay. a giant in the field. Yeah. There you go. Um, all right. And what then? So you said accounting to start. What drove you from accounting over to? Uh, financial planning slash human ecology. I actually moved from accounting real, real quickly. Uh, (laughs) All my work was never in accounting. But the reason I got interested in financial planning was just honestly out of curiosity. I, I would talk to a lot of friends about finances. And I would just notice, like, I tend to be more conscientious around money. And, you know, I was always told to save early. And I really did that. Saved early, saved often, you know. And but I saw all these other friends and family members and relatives making very different decisions. And I just thought like, why is that? Like, you know that you're going to have to retire. And I'm like 25, right? But you know, you're gonna have to retire. Why aren't you doing that? And I got really curious about the consumer behavior element in financial planning. And so I thought at the time, well, I'll go get my master's and then I'll be a financial planner. And then while I was there, I thought, oh, this is I actually don't know that I want to work one-on-one with people. I'm interested in the bigger, broader questions. And the way that you can do that is through is through research. So have you actually um, done financial planning work with one-on-one clients? Or have you always been pure academic stream? I've been, I would say, 99% academic stream. I, as part of, um, I'm a CFP. And as part of that, I had to do some financial planning work. And so I, I worked with a firm in Canada to get to kind of get those hours, but it was also just great experience working with their clients and working on those financial plans. I'm sorry, CFP US, CFP Canada, both? Canada, CFP okay, Canada. Interesting. I don't think I knew that. So that's cool. Now, what then brought you to York? What's, uh, I guess, 
given that York is sort of an outlier in Canada having that you know, financial planning concentration, what's the what's the motivation there from, say, I don't know, like an institutional perspective at York? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was there was there were so many factors that went into it, but I had just graduated in I graduated in 2012 and I took a job at the at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and they were in a child youth and family studies program. So, uh, right, like they're just they're just tucked into the most interesting places. Um, and I knew and I really liked that school. I liked the program. Um, but then I, I saw the opportunity at York and I'm just in it. I like I like adventure and I like learning new things. And I thought, I bet that would be a good challenge. Like, I wonder what it's like. And I met with um, Dale Domian and Chris Robinson, who were both professors at York and talked to them about the opportunity there. And um, yeah, and it just felt like the right decision at the time. Dale really is like a traditional finance prof. I think that's fair. And Chris sort of transcends between financial planning well, and Dale's finance. Actually, that right? PhD is in economics. Yeah, but he teaches, he's much more on the investment side. Um, and then Chris was more of a traditional finance math guy, actually. I, he would say finance. Um, and he, him and Kwok Ho got really interested in the personal finance side, just from a personal interest. And they just thought, why are we not teaching this? You know, there's so many things that people need to learn. And they created that stream. Perfect. And yes, they have a financial planning textbook that's fairly well used across, I think, North American programs. I don't think it's just a Canadian text. Well, I think right now it, it has been, but right now um, the only, like the latest version is only a, a Canadian version. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think the version I have on my shelf is maybe 12 or 15 years old, something like that. Yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. the newest one just came out. I, I helped him out with that one. I joined I joined efforts and that one, I think, is officially out last year. I haven't seen it yet, so I got to get to yeah, the right I don't conferences think it's in print or whatever. Form. I think it's just we're using it, the online version for classes right now, but I think they're hoping to get it out for next year. Perfect. Oh, um, now can you talk me through a little bit about what happens in the York financial planning program, sort of what students do you bring in and then what students do you turn out? Well, honestly, you know, one of our challenges is we're not very well known. And so students just kind of fumble into our program, right? They've taken a an introductory course or in their third year, well, like at York, they're all business students. So at least in our program. So the first two years is basically all the business prerequisites. And then in your third and fourth year, you specialize. And for finance students, they have to take three classes. They have to take um, basically a, an introduction to corporate finance, an introduction to investment planning, and an introduction to financial planning. And then based on those, they usually self-select into the stream based on which one they liked the best or were most interested in. Do you find that, I, I guess my thought on this is always like thinking back to my university days, everybody that went to did went to do Bachelor of Commerce sort of had this goal of working in like, you know, like corporate finance or mergers and acquisitions or whatever. Mm -hmm. So is it like there's a an attempt to, I don't know, pull people away from that? Or do you think that it's, you know... I mean, we try to have honest conversations with them. You know, a lot of them are like, I'm an investment banker. I'm going to Wall Street or, you know, Bay Street or whatever. And, um, you know, I always tell the story. Can I tell this little story here? Story's this good, is a story yes. I tell to, this is a little story I tell to my students. And um, 
had a friend who was an investment banker when I lived out on the West Coast. And uh, well, it was a friend, my friend's husband. And he was just gone all the time and working these crazy hours. And, you know, one day, another friend of mine, it was Monday morning, he's at the Starbucks, he looks over and he sees our other friend there and he's in flip flops and shorts. And he says, wow, you know, a casual day at the office, you know, Chuck. And he, Chuck looks at him, he says, I've been here since Saturday at 11 a.m. Like I was called in at Saturday and I have not left. And I say, you know, you're, you're, the kind of job that you want, you really have to look at the industry that you're going into and the the balance that you want to strike with your life and your work. And do you want to be somebody who's called away at 11 o'clock on a Saturday while you're at the beach to work, right, for 48 hours straight? Or do you want a little bit more flexibility? Um, and I think students, you know, sometimes they're like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I'm going to make millions of dollars. Right. And, and other students kind of get it. Yeah. I I had a, a fellow I used to do some work with in, in the education side and his first job out of school was, he was a, a currency manager, like a foreign currency manager. Mm-hmm. And he said for his first two years, he never, like he, he was waking up in the middle of the night because of job requirements. He said in that two years, he never had more than two consecutive hours of sleep. Yeah, it's like, just crazy. Which, yeah, that's it's it is madness. These uh, and I I think you're right. I think if people were sort of aware of what uh, what those especially early years those finance jobs entail, they would really look yeah. at it and think, yeah. Well, and I always yeah. think too, just from a human rights perspective, like how do we allow that to be the case? Those working environments to be the case, but yeah. somehow that's, they, that's a fair point. Somehow they yeah. persist. I think everybody thinks they're going to be Bill Ackman, but you realize that there's like, you know, whole machine behind that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so then, uh, and I see this a little bit with uh, with U.S. educators. I know we, we talk about this sometimes, but how many folks do you figure finish your program who go on then to work in financial planning? That's a great question, and that's something we've been trying to track a little bit better. Um, I'm going to say it's not a very high percentage because a lot of students and and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of the reasons is the entryway into financial planning is not straightforward. A lot of times it's sales and commission or just jobs that are very not tailored to what a 22 or a 23 year old can do. And so it's very um, discouraging for them. And they end up just taking, you know, a job with, you know, one of the big banks or one of the insurance companies because they can't really find a direct way into financial planning. And now some certainly have and are, but that's a real barrier. I, I would agree with that. Um, I guess given your perfect world then, I'm assuming that, you know, you, your students would graduate and there would be you know, a, a number of like salaried financial planning jobs available where they're really producing financial planning outputs. Would that be? Yeah. Like a, like a paraplanner. Right. Like we don't really have a lot of paraplanners in Canada and that's a great position for these students. Like they know all the mechanics of financial planning, but they need to really get their hands on it and see the plans to come together from the back end 
before they're ready to move forward. And that's such a great place for them. And, and I, for whatever reason, we just haven't been able to, you know, the industries in Canada haven't been able to make that successful. And yeah, I think in Canada, the, the sort of what would pass as paraplanner jobs are almost exclusively high net worth planning jobs where, you know, you're often looking for, you know, CPA, CFP, or some combination like that, right? It's not, it, mm-hmm. I don't find a lot of paraplanning work happening at the mass affluent level. No, the only thing that like, w- <laughs> sometimes you would see it in, you know, in banks, they may become like customer service represent- reps, right? Where they're basically tellers working their way up that way. And that's like, to me, um, that's not a job that, that they they are way overqualified for that job. But that is one way that sometimes they find a way in. Even there, though, typically they're going to be doing a pretty sales heavy role yep. in, in that career path somewhere. It's very transactional and, and salesy. It's not relationship building and um, really financial planning. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, on that note, actually, do your students get sales training as part of their undergrad? No. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, do you think that that is there a way to do that? Is that something that just doesn't fit in a like a university uh, environment or? I mean, you know, we're in a business school, so certainly we've got a marketing wing and a entrepreneurship, you know, track. Um, and one of the things that we've been thinking about, we do have a a track specifically in entrepreneurship, and so one idea is to look at, you know. We're doing a couple merged classes to give them some background in that. But honestly, and this is just, this is going to be my own bias and philosophy coming, but I just don't think financial planners should be in the business of sales. I mean, there's always the, like, everybody is selling something at some point, right? There's, it, there's it's, always it's that. True. It's true. Yeah. It's true. I, I guess it's, it's like, I don't, particularly where they are, I don't know that they should be out selling products that they don't fully understand and haven't seen how they work in plans. Right. Yeah. And I I think there's a difference there between selling product and then selling somebody on the idea of building a financial planning relationship and having Mm. a financial, like those, well, it's sales and sales. It's not necessarily, uh, it's not the same kind of thing, I think. Yeah, but but your your point's well taken. It is there's still a sales component. I mean, we're all selling ourselves all the time, unfortunately. Now, do you have an ideal student? I mean, honestly, like I think we all have an ideal student. Uh, you know, the ideal student is is you know motivated and curious and really wants to. I think that the the ideal student is somebody who even has like a bit of experience and can can really um, take the material and bring it to life. But we don't really have that. Usually we have students who have never really seen this before. But I my ideal students, my favorite students are the ones that are just really curious. They're not just taking what you've taught them. They're they're take they're taking it and asking really thoughtful questions. I I do agree about curiosity. To me, that's the the number one thing. And I try to promote that curiosity. It's a tough thing. It's a, uh, it's a tough thing. And, and a lot of students are not taught to think that way. Unfortunately, that's one of the things that I run into is that they're really taught to learn the material, respond to the questions. And then, you know, they get to 
post-secondary and we're like, why aren't they thinking critically? Well, they haven't necessarily been required to do that. So now there's not that many, I, you might be the only one, the only, I think, PhD in, like there's a few people, like Moshe Malevsky and Bonnie Jean McDonald and like that are essentially actuarial scientists folks who do some financial planning work. There's the folks at uh, HEC in Montreal, AGC in Montreal. There's, mm -hmm. I think, a little bit of math folks at Laurier doing some financial planning work, but you're kind of a rarity here being a PhD with that focus in financial planning. Is that, am I about right there? Well, I mean, yes and no. I would say that my degree wasn't necessarily financial planning, right? Like family resource management could go a lot of directions. And one of the directions that we found that is a major for students is financial planning. So I didn't get like a PhD in financial planning. I got a PhD in something much more broad than that. And then um, found a path in financial planning. That's fair. And I think there's only, was there four schools in the U.S. right now doing financial planning PhDs? It's not very many well, anyways. Uh, I mean, that number's changing. Um, there are, and again, the financial planning PhD, I think there's only really, I think Georgia and Texas Tech and, and Kansas, uh, maybe Missouri, have that title. I Please, uh, anybody out there, I apologize if I got that wrong. But um, I other schools have more broad, like Ohio State has a has a deg an undergraduate degree that they can get, and and you know we come out with family resource management PhDs, and others, um, some business schools now are starting to do that, or people will come out with a finance PhD with a very specific concentration in some field of personal finance. So. What do you see as the differences that animate? We just started to explore it a little bit here. So, you know, what you're doing at, at York or other programs in Canada versus what you see in the U.S. and well, maybe at the undergrad level. Yeah, can I? If do we have time for just like a like a three minute history lesson? Yes, that's what I, you're I here for. I think this yeah. is really important to understand the difference between Canada and the U.S. in the financial planning world. So, back in the late 1800s, like 1860 something or other the federal government in the U.S. passed something passed something called the Morrill Act. And what that did is it created public funding for land-grant institutions. So the U.S. has a number of land-grant institutions, which are publicly funded. Some of them have become private over time, but they're publicly funded. They were started by the federal government granting land to these states and saying, go ahead and sell it and use the funds to build these universities. And by the way, we want these universities to be focused on more technical and applied fields such as like agriculture and economics rather than liberal arts, right? So each of the 50 states has a land grant institution. And also like some of the historically black um, colleges came out of this. Um, and so they, they have these public publicly funded um, education. And, and what's cool about them is every state's got them. And then they said, and the point of these is to conduct research that is applied. So they, you've got economics, agricultural economics. And they said, 
and you are going to use this extension model. So, so there's one university in the state, and now there's all these extension offices and all the counties around the state. And they said, you do the research and you send it out to the farmers, right? You send it out to people that need it. So you do research on soil quality and, and fertilizer, and you send it out to the farmer so they can actually use it. And from that little history lesson, each of these land-grant institutions had this like well, they had home economics programs and home economics programs initially were like, well, to, you know, create teachers to go out to schools to teach home economics. But at a broader level, they were studying things like how does a farm manage its resources? How does it produce food? How does it make clothing? Like, how do they um, manage the money coming in and out? And and that is something that the U.S. had a focus on that I don't think Canada did as much. And from those schools, a few of them have grown out this financial planning specialization. It sort of modernized what used to be the case. So Texas Tech, University of Georgia, Kansas State, Iowa State, those are all land-grant institutions that now have these financial planning programs. So they have a long history of studying these sort of things, and it's just sort of modernized over time. Interesting. I I never clued into that. That's a that's a good connection of the history to the the present condition. So in Canada, then really, I would say financial planning programs compared to what you're just talking about are more like there's financial planning happening, and you know at the like at U of C, we can start teaching some financial planning courses. Is that mm-hmm. about right to yeah. just kind of I mean, drop it in? I think the difference is like the the history of the U.S. is that these these financial planning programs come from a very rich history that has changed over time. And so they are dealing with things like, you know, they're, they're parked in child youth and family studies programs. They are looking more at the family and the household holistically, not just from a, Oh, let's create a personal finance major in a finance you know, a business school. There's very different philosophies when you start to look at how financial planning is taught at a place like Georgia or Texas Tech versus like even a place like York or another business school, right? Because it's when you're in a business school, it's different courses and a different focus. Interesting. So, yeah, and I think that's true. I'm most familiar with the University of Calgary program, which, you know, in some way, shape or form dates back to like 1982, but looks kind of like this, right? Where essentially it's a there was a business school and a profit. The business school thought we should bring in some financial planning courses and it kind of sits, I don't know what the right word is. It's just, it's like another set of finance courses in the curriculum and and really yeah. not much more than that. So, yeah. Now, are there other schools like, I think York brought you on to kind of grow this financial planning capacity. Am I right there? Um, I mean, it was, it, I wouldn't say necessarily. I, I think that they wanted some more um, expertise in the area of personal finance. They saw it as an area of growth. And since then, uh, like Chris Robinson, who started the program, he's since retired. Um, and we've hired two new faculty members, um, which is, is sort of exciting. And so, but there's, you know, there's, there's always challenges to, to what we can do with the program. And we're always trying to think about new ways and, and how to better position ourselves. Uh, I, I, that's not even the right way to say it of what is needed in Canada and how can we help that? How can we help serve? So are there other schools that are doing the same stuff as at York? 
Not that I know of. Um, there are schools that are, like you said, like University of Calgary that have some courses, um, but there's, n I don't know of any that are dedicated, that have a dedicated stream and dedicated faculty for financial planning like York does. Now, do you find that when you're having, because especially because you're in a business school or finance school, right? Do you find that you're having to constantly remind people that financial planning is not just like investment selection? Yes and no. With our finance faculty, because Chris and Kwok have been there for so long, they have really like drilled it in and nobody in finance is not familiar. Like everybody knows what financial planning is within the finance area. More broadly than that, I think that people think it's it's investment and we're, you know, we're always having conversations with like the marketing folks on the consumer behavior side. And, you know, we've made some really good connections about so we can talk about those sorts of things. And what are you teaching and how might that be able to help in this field? Do you see um, Canadian practitioners? Like, Do you have conversations with Canadian practitioners about pursuing masters or PhDs in financial planning? It's very common I mean, they would US. like to. They would like yeah. to. Um, and unfortunately, there are no programs in Canada. We've certainly um, bounced that around, but there are some impediments to that at York, I will say. But yeah, honestly, like when people talk to me about it, you, the best option that we have for them is we point them to the university or to um, Kansas State's online program that they can get their master's or their PhD. And again, it's not focused on Canadian specific, but it does give you all of the things that you need, right? It's um, like retirement planning. The only difference between retirement planning in the U.S. and Canada are the vehicles that you're using to put your money in. But most of it is pretty much the same. And I know a few folks who have done their master's at K-State, uh, Canadians, and had nothing but good things to say about it. I know um, Tanya, past show guest, uh, Tanya Staples, is currently working on her master's at K-State. She's mm -hmm. at uh, your way in Kitchener-Waterloo, so... Yeah, absolutely. There, there are some Canadians doing it, but I, yeah, I don't find it's all that common. So. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's one of those things that like hits me, you know, a couple times a year, and I'm like, we really need to do this. And then there's just some, there's some barriers to it that haven't we haven't solved yet. Right. That's right. I misspoke. Tanya's pursuing her PhD, not her master's. Tanya. Well, I think she might yeah. have to get her master's first. So technically. He, she has a master's already okay. so not yeah so this is where i had okay. to correct myself i know right away that she has a master's already so yeah okay yes because I, I i i've looked at the k-state program myself i just got to navigate a schedule you you and i've chatted about this so i mean yeah. it's a it's a great program um if it's it's expensive for canadians that's right yeah um among the the, the cost is not my impediment the time is my impediment here mm -hmm. so yeah so then I'd like to talk a little bit about research and financial planning. Um, this is an area for, for me, um, I remember my first time going first time going to the CFP Board Economic Research Colloquium and just being blown away that there's actual financial planning research happening. Yeah. Um, like it it was a, a foreign concept to me. So can you just talk a little bit about research in the financial planning sphere in general? Can you give us a little background yeah, here? Yeah, you know, and what's so what's interesting to me is since I started and I started down this path in 2008, um, it's really the research has really grown, but also focused. So back when I started, there wasn't like this um, 
CFP board uh, in the U.S., their financial planning journal, they, that didn't exist then. And so now there's a journal specifically dedicated to financial planning research. Now, in the past, there were journals where you could publish financial planning research, but it wasn't dedicated to that, right? They were like consumer policy journals or um one is the review of financial services or uh, financial services review, sorry. Um, and so that's financial services review very broadly. So there's all kinds of variation within that. But now there are there's at least one journal that's more tailored specifically to financial planning. There's also um, the Journal of Financial Financial Counseling and Planning. So that's been around for a really long time. But again, that also has financial counseling um research. There's also the Journal of Financial Therapy, which is uh, looks more at financial therapy than financial planning, but also has some topics for sure that would be of interest to financial planners in that journal. Yeah, that's uh, so I think you're right, four or five sort of journals where you would see financial planning research published where it kind of fits into that that Mm -hmm. category. So um, and of course, nothing in Canada, no Canadian journals that mirror any of this. No, not really. Um, no, <laughs> not at all, actually. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah. And, 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 and that's partially just like the size and the audience. And because you have all these PhD programs in the U.S. focusing on that, they're, they're generating the research that contributes to the journal, whereas in Canada, there's just sort of one-offs and they're mostly just publishing in the U.S., journals and what about then like if i'm a canadian practitioner and i want to read you know current research i want to see what's going on then what should i be accessing i think that there's a number i'm actually just in real time looking it up so i get it it's all good Um, yeah uh financial planning review that's the that's the journal that the cfp board um is is supporting so that's that's probably the primary one. And I would also then say the Journal of Financial Counseling and Planning is also a good one um, in the journal, like I said before, the Journal of Financial Therapy. Financial Services Review, you may find something in there, but it's not going to be as much as Financial Planning Review. I found Financial Services Review, like that's a dense academic journal. And I find with Financial Services Review, you get kind of a mix. You get some articles and some journal articles, like and a lot of consumer finance or consumer behavior stuff in uh, in financial services review, which is good. It's interesting, but I don't know if it's directly. Yeah, it, some of the stuff is um, a little bit esoteric, and and very. You know, the thing with research is you're very rarely going to have the research paper that like blows everything open, right? Everybody is just doing an incremental test or an incremental thing at a time. So what about I think, then I think the, the other journal I just want to mention is the Journal of Financial Planning. That that's also quite good because there's a lot of applied research in the Journal of Financial Planning. I do really like Journal of Financial Planning, and that's one you can join the FPA US, which is pretty inexpensive for a Canadian and access yeah. it that way. So um and I was thinking you had missed it, but I was I don't want to ask it and you say something negative about it. I thought, what's what have I no, missed here? So, no, yeah. I I um I was you know I'm cataloging them in my head, and I and the problem with them is their names are all so similar that mm-hmm. it's like, did I already say that one? You know, it's like financial planning review journal of you know they're all so similar that I always think I have forgotten. So, do you have researchers that you think are just can't miss? Like, would you see them? in the the byline that you say that's one that i know is going to be worth reading 
Not necessarily. And and I only say that because, because you know, the kind of in research that I'm more interested in, somebody like your typical researcher is going to, like I said before, they're going to be doing all this like small incremental research um, that leads someplace. And so sometimes they'll have, you know, like there was one paper that um, Lynch, he's at a University of Colorado Boulder. Um, he, it was basically on financial literacy and they did this massive meta study that showed that less than 1% of financial um, behaviors are attributable to financial literacy. And, and basically just showed how study after study after study shows that like financial literacy efforts just don't work. Right. And, and so every once in a while a paper like that comes out and just kind of blows your mind a little bit. And it's like, you kind of knew that that was happening, but the way that they structured the study and showed it was very effective seen that one so i'll have to have a look at that and i yeah i remember that's um john lynch i think right that's john lynch name. yeah john lynch and and um i actually don't even think his name is the first author i think fernandez is the first author but everybody remembers it as is is john lynch because he's very well known on that consumer sciences side and well he is and, and um he has been hosting a consumer decision making conference in boulder colorado for the last several years so um, people also know him through that it's fair. Yeah. Um, one day, one day I'll get to that conference. So then, and that's interesting, you know, this like incremental approach to research. And I do agree with you. It's interesting to see people kind of you know, come with one little bit at a time. Now you and I chatted a little bit before the call start, before the recording started about where you're at with your research. And you said COVID is giving you kind of an opportunity for a reset here. Can you mm -hmm. chat about that a bit? Yeah. I, you know, when you're, when you're doing research, you kind of get into like, I study a lot of um, financial behaviors of, of like young adults, right? And that takes me in lots of different directions. And sometimes, you know, a research question pops up and it's like, oh, that would be interesting. So let's chase that down. But, but I wasn't really that convinced that what I was, what I was researching was what was most important, right? There's, you know, it's kind of what you what you're interested in. There's a little Venn diagram of like, what are you interested in? What can you actually do? And what are other people interested in? And like that sweet spot in the middle is where you should be focusing your time. And I just realized I needed to step back because I was I was doing research projects for the sake of doing research projects and burning myself out and not really that interested in what I was doing. And I just thought, you know what, I've got enough on the go. I'm just going to finish those off. I'm going to take a break. And then I'm going to restart when I feel like I have gas in the tank and, and, a, and a real interest in what I'm studying and what I think are questions that the greater public could, you know, would like to know as well. So to my mind, one of the big impediments in financial planning research is the availability of really useful data, because it's incredibly expensive to go gather new data, right? Oh, it's expensive. It's complicated. It's time consuming. And, you know, the, the difference between the U.S. and Canada is the U.S. just has more resources for that. Um, not that Canada doesn't have great research or great data sets. You know, we've got StatsCan out there that's doing amazing work. 
but they don't quite get to the detail that some of the data sets in the U.S. So the, the U.S. has something called the Survey of Consumer Finances, and they over-survey wealthier individuals, and they ask questions about asset allocation and, and very specific things about retirement plans. And you can get really nitty and gritty about your questions with that kind of data set. And then there's a health and retirement survey, which which surveys older adults. And then you've got the National Longitudinal Study for Youth. And so there's all these data sets that in the US that have very granular financial data that we just don't have. We do have some of the, that in Canada, but not to the same extent. Essentially, StatsCan is sort of the, the, the resource in Canada, whereas you have all these different entities in the US. Now, exactly. what about getting data from financial services firms? So whether it's banks or mutual fund companies well, you would or be surprised at how willing they are to share that information. It's, you know, for them, it's their proprietary client information. Certainly there have been instances where um, researchers have partnered with various financial planning firms to get some of that information. Um, and that's worked. Um, I haven't had a need to do that yet for what I want to do. Although some of the research questions that are coming up now lend may lend itself to that. Yeah. I, I have like there has been some stuff that I've been surprised at. I know of two Canadian banks that have like there's the um, misguided beliefs of financial advisors paper, which is a well-known paper that was based on yep. Canadian bank data. And then I remember Derek Tharp had some research that was based on yep. like Canadian bank data that was based on um, like behavioral nudges and how those yep. played out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's definitely, that's definitely an option. It's just that it's a, it's a harder process to go about than it is. You know, if you want to use a public data set, you just sign up and you download the data and get started. Right. So any researcher can do that. And if you want to use, like I partnered on, on one with Equifax, um, TransUnion, not Equifax, TransUnion, um, on getting some of their data. And so that was a, but that was a partnership with a, a nonprofit and uh, we were able to get that, but it was a, it was a very challenging <laughs> process. And the data was just also the data that you get from these larger data sets is, is, is a lot cleaner. Well, we, we partnered with a nonprofit and did a project with TransUnion. So we got credit reporting data from them. Uh, that was, um, privatized so we couldn't see like who the people were but we got enough of the information that we could do the research um answer our research questions that way and is transunion's assumption there that you're going to produce something that helps them to to have a better interaction with their customers or something like that yeah, or... i mean you know the research question that we were asking in that project was what's the difference between like who's faring better those who file bankruptcy a consumer proposal or do a debt management plan. And we looked at a number of measures to try to figure that out. And and from their perspective, you know, TransUnion's not like, oh, that's going to, you know, help us. But it is a very good question to be asking, right? Because they are working very closely with these financial institutions and keeping that data and they're, those institutions are using that data to make decisions. And so they want to make sure that um, that data, at least that they can contribute to the, you know, policy making in that area. I guess I would say it that way. Is there a finding you can share around that? Well, I mean, uh, yes and no. Um, we, it, it kind of, it was sort of dependent on 
uh, very specific measures that we were looking at. Um, but we found in a lot of cases, it, like in some cases, we found that uh, people recovered faster if they filed bankruptcy, in some cases, if they did a debt management plan. But it was very, the findings were very nuanced. So it wasn't just like, a oh, yeah, of course, like, everybody should file bankruptcy or everybody should do this. Um, yeah. Any it, good financial planning question? It depends. Well, yeah, yeah, it depends. And also, you know, the thing about that that we were looking at was we just, we wanted to see how long it took people to rebound after a negative financial event like that. And, and we found that, you know, in many cases, uh, they were able to rebound within like 18 to 24 months, which I think in itself is a positive finding for people who find themselves in that position. Because when you're in it, you feel really desperate, like either you and, and, you know, for a lot of people, too, this isn't just like a series of bad financial decisions, right? Something catastrophic usually happens, like, you know your own, whether it's a divorce or a death or a loss of a job or something, some life event triggers, and then you find yourself in this place. And so I think that was the positive finding from that was that no matter what path you chose within 18 to 24 months, you were, you were back up where you were. I would have guessed longer. I would have guessed closer to three years, but yeah, that's. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. But we, I mean, you, you definitely still see it climbing, but the real, the real, you know, there was a real trough. And then the the peak, right? And then they would come up out of it. That's good to know. That's uh, that's that's positive and useful research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I like it. Um, okay, so then, what about financial planners, like practitioners, participating in research? And again, this is something I see a fair bit in the U.S., and I don't know if I've seen it that much in Canada. No, it's definitely something we've been thinking about as well, um, because there's a couple things. One, financial. Researchers need to know what financial planners, there's two things. One, financial planners have information that researchers can use. And two, financial planners have questions that they want answered that researchers can help answer. So there's both of those things. And so I think um, in a lot of ways, like I, I joined like the AOP roundtable to just kind of get a sense of what they're talking about and what people um what financial planners problems are like what are they facing what is the industry facing so that i can go back to my colleagues and say is this something that we can help with or is this information and so i that's one thing i would say is if there are financial planners out there that are like you know i just don't think there's been a good resolution to this problem right whether it's like the you know decumulation or or withdraw strategy in retirement like i you know and and talking with researchers and saying like this is the problem that we're seeing we need more information or we need this or that that really helps us to formulate the research questions um, that are then very applicable and helpful aop is advice only planners i think this advice is, only this planners part. yeah sorry there we go. the yeah. advice okay. only no planner worries. roundtable they that's a yeah. couple once a year i think and we just had uh, Chris Enns on the podcast recently who uh, okay. talked about the same thing. So, yeah, perfect. Okay. Now, what about then? So you, you mentioned um, this research from uh, John Lynch at all, or I guess John Lynch is part of the at all in this case, but around financial literacy. And it's something you and I have chatted about. I think you are still involved in some financial literacy efforts. Or are you or am I or is this something that's fallen off a bit? You know, 
I've had a, let me, let me just tell you, tell you what it is. So I really was interested in financial literacy for a while and through, you know, conference after conference, reading all these papers and, 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 you know, the John Lynch paper, the Fernandez and Lynch paper really solidified it for me, but financial literacy, the way that we think of it does not work. And part of that is, and it kind of goes, but there was this other paper by, um, Willis. This is the Australian paper, right? This is Willis, right? Willis. Isn't she in, no, yeah. I don't think it was Australian. She's. I thought she's, she was Australian. Okay. She's anyways, American. Yeah. This was in like the Iowa Review or something. Um, yeah. But that was in 2008 and also basically said financial literacy doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it's an excuse for companies to make their products more and more complicated and then blame the consumer. And honestly, Jason, that's where I've come down to is saying, you can't on one side of your mouth, you know, talk and, and make things more complicated for the consumers. And then on the other one, just say, well, well, it's your fault because you didn't know any better. Like you can't make these products that complicated and also put in all these tricks and traps and then blame people for it. And so I started to get really kind of discouraged, really discouraged when I saw that. And so and I also just, you know, a lot of the financial literacy research was kind of reiterating similar themes and I just sort of got tired of it. Saw a presentation this year, not uh, not published yet at uh, at CFP Board Academic Research Colloquium that sort of said the same thing that you know essentially financial literacy didn't seem to have a, a meaningful outcome and really it was that people with money could recover from bad decisions and people without money couldn't like mm -hmm. that that's what it yeah. seemed to come down to. So yeah I I you know like you I used to put in some volunteer work on the financial literacy side and you you kind of figure this is what's necessary intuitively it seems to make sense but it's it just it doesn't seem to have the impact now I, I don't know my thought on this has been and I think this is partly drawing on Anna Marie Lusardi is that the biggest thing you can impart in somebody is that there are answers to questions not necessarily that they they know the answers is that maybe is that an angle that does work or is there like is yeah, it still I mean, fruitless one thing that we're looking at too is like financial you know self-efficacy and resilience and there's all these other sort of buzzwords that are coming but it's a combination of yeah like almost knowing it's better that people build confidence and a sense of self-efficacy around finances than it is about the knowledge, right? Or just giving them information. So we want to, we want people to know that they can help themselves. To my mind, it's like, it's useless for most people to walk around with knowledge of, let's say, how a mortgage works. But at the time when I'm taking out a mortgage, I, I should know what questions to ask. Is that? Yeah. And that's in that Fernandez Lynch paper, they talk about just-in-time education and they find that just-in-time education is quite effective. So yeah, teaching an 18-year-old about a mortgage that they're going to take out in 20 years is not helpful, right? They're not going to remember that. The, in, the edge, There's a decay, right, that happens in learning. And so they're not going to remember that. But there are really good touch points where some education is really helpful. Yeah, that's perfect. So, I, I mean, I like this. I think there's some, and, and I look forward to reading this paper then. I think there's some real value in getting to 
you know, a, a better understanding of what works and what doesn't work. So yeah. that's, yeah. I mean, certainly um, we, we want to get to a place where people can make good decisions. And we also, you know, coming from, you know, my background in, in consumer sciences, and it's really a focus on the, the human, the person, the consumer, I hate the word consumer, but let's just go with it, right, is on that person and like making sure that they are well, they are okay. And a lot of times we look at that and we see, well, you know, throwing information at them is not making them is not helping them, right? What we need to do is to set up mechanisms that help people get out of trouble or, you know, don't let them fall so far, right? We need safety nets in place. So do you have, I I don't want to deviate too much from the safety net conversation, but can I ask about like the, you know, you talked about design versus, can I use nudges here? Is that okay? Or is this a problematic word? Okay. So do you have favorite nudges? Are there things that we can be doing that that would make our financial lives appreciably better? You know, the thing about nudges, and I also got really interested in in uh, behavioral economics and nudges for a while, and I still am to a certain extent. But to me, it's similar to financial literacy in that it's it's only going to help a little bit, right? It's not going to solve the systemic problems that we face in our financial services or, or in financial services, but some small things can really be helpful. Like, like my bank account has like a, a round up the change sort of thing where anytime I pay something, it rounds up to the next dollar and moves that money into my savings account. Now that's great for people who really do not do not know to save, right? Or not do not know, they know to save. It's just that they can't pull the trigger to save, right? And maybe that over time, without them even thinking about it, it builds up a little safety net for them, right? So things like that, those kind of nudges are helpful. Um, And also uh, things like, um, this is much more common or becoming common. I think they're even talking about instituting it into law in the US that when you hire somebody, they have to be opted, automatically opted into the retirement plan and then automatically opted into their raises going into part of their raises going into the retirement plan. So those kinds of things can be massively helpful, massively helpful, particularly for people who wouldn't otherwise. Now, part of the problem with those is that people who might have and would have saved more aren't going to save as much as they would have because they're like, oh, well, if 3% is what I'm opted in at, that must be the optimal amount, right? Which we all know is probably not, but it's better than nothing. And it's not going to, you know, immeasurably harm their take-home pay. I I can't remember whose research it was, but I I recall some research that that suggested that like 70% of people were better off with automated savings and then, you know, 30, and of course it depends always, right? But like 30% were better off if you told them you must save and they would save more than on the automated plans. I think that number is... That's that's probably a, that sounds like a a good breakdown. And, you know, the the interesting thing about that is that we have a huge problem. We're going to, we're having a bigger and bigger problem with retirement savings when we've switched from, you know, defined contribution pension or defined benefit pensions to defined contribution and are putting that, you know, more and more is getting offloaded to to individuals to manage that. And, but we don't, but what we forget is that like, oh yeah, that sounds great in principle. Like the whole 401k thing was just like this one off clause that has blown up into now it's this, this is a retirement. And even the person that wrote it was like, that was not the intention, 
But here we are where we're all responsible for our own retirement without the skills or the ability to have any idea how to do that. And so I think that any time that we can simplify and automate for people things that used to be simplified and automated, right? Like getting back to that so that they don't have to make so many decisions. So do you think that the CPP enhancement that we're sort of nearing now the end of, do you think this is a benefit? I mean, I think that it was probably necessary just given given the state of of CPP. And, you know, it's going to help a little bit. But again, CPP is only expected to replace up to 25% of your income. So it's still not, you know, real. It's, you know, people who are going to retire and rely on CPP are in for a rude awakening, you know. So the enhancement will help a little bit, but that's not, you know, it's not intended to do much more than that. By 2072, it'll be 33% of your income. So <laughs> 2072. That's Perfect. Right. I don't know yeah. that either of us will be here around to see that, but <laughs> I'm pretty pretty sure not. So yeah. Um, all right. If so, I mean, what a good for us, right? So um any last comments about um just the state of either financial literacy or research in general? Yeah, I think I just want to say I don't I don't want my comments about financial literacy to discourage people that that have really good intentions about wanting to help people. You know, sometimes I talk to a lot of people in the financial services industry and they say, oh, we're going to launch this, you know, financial literacy campaign or project. And and I and I want to encourage those things. I just encourage those people to look at some of the research that shows what is helpful and what is not helpful. So the just-in-time education is really helpful, right? Broad topics aren't as helpful. And I'll include a link certainly to the to the Lynch paper and the Willis paper here, and that helps. I think the Willis papers, um, and I've read it. it it's pretty good in that it uh, talks about. I don't know, like a conflict of interest almost in delivering this education. So, yeah. 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 And I think that's important. It's just, again, people are coming at this in in a way that they want to help. And I think that's great. And I don't want to discourage people who want to help. But I do say, you know, if you want to help, he, let's look at some resources and make sure that the way that you're going about it really is going to help and that you're not going to waste your time and your money and your energy and other people's um, in that pursuit. All right. My last question here, Jody, uh, what do you see as the primary benefit of a financial plan or of the financial planning process? Oh, gosh, honestly, peace of mind. Peace of mind. There are so many moving parts and you just don't know and people want to people just want to know like can i sleep at night like with the decisions that i'm making can i sleep at night and will i be able to retire you know am i going to be destitute and for me the financial planning is a way like a financial plan is a way to allow people to sleep comfortably at night and to have somebody that they can call when a problem comes up or something changes. And, you know, it's not necessarily something they need to talk about every day, but, you know, if they're looking at their milestones and saying, okay, you know, that gives them a little freedom, right? You can enjoy your vacation when you know you can really afford it, right? Whereas like rack putting it on your credit card and crossing your fingers, you might kind of enjoy that vacation, but you might also feel a little bit stressed the whole time. So I think for me, 
And that's what I hear from most people who get a financial plan is they just can, it's like they've been holding their breath and they don't realize it. And then they can, they can finally let it out. So this is my chance for my favorite uh, Carl Richards quote here. And this is, am I going to be okay? Right. This is, that's just it. Am I going to be okay? It's that simple. It's that simple. And I think the financial planning, financial plans and financial planners offer just an invaluable service in helping people to answer that question. That's it. A great uh, point at which to conclude. Thanks so much, Jody. It's always great to talk to you. I, I always learned so much from our conversations. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thank same, you. Same for you, Jason. I, I appreciated being on here today. The number for today's episode is six. The number is six. Uh, my concluding comment here is... I get a lot of questions about um, conference speakers and that kind of thing. A lot of people looking to to fill slates and there's some great conference speakers out there. Um, we have some really solid folks here in Canada who sort of do the conference circuit. Um, I want you to think about whether or not there might be an academic that you can get in. Um, I've seen Jody speak at a few different conferences. The CFA Edmonton Society used to bring her out once a year. Um, and she was always excellent. Uh, she like very evidence-based, um, which of course the CFA Society loves. Um, but you know, there's lots of great profs in Canada and I don't want to sort of downsell them, but um, they're often you know, relatively inexpensive. Uh, you can you know book them in and they'll bring great value. Um, they tend to be a little more challenging presentations than what you sometimes see from some of the more polished keynotes that you know often challenge people to think a little bit or you know as we hear Jody here sort of you know calls financial literacy into question. Well, that's not maybe a message people are comfortable with. So anyways, um, you know reach into that pool of academics and see if there's anybody out there that might be a great speaker for uh, a next conference. Okay. Um, thanks very much for joining me. And uh, in two weeks time, we're going to delve into the lifetime capital gains exemption with Jim. Thanks so much. Hi, if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're gonna sign up here for CE to subscribe. Currently the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to 
uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about. 